everyone. Welcome to Blurry Photos. I'm your host, David Flora. Hey, it's time once again for the annual Campfire Ghost Stories, where I regale you with spine-tingling tales of terror. Although, admittedly, some of that spine-tingling could be from sitting too long listening to bad stories. I have a handful of chilling yarns here to spin, including a classic of English literature. And if you like my narration style, make sure to check out the Living Among Bigfoot series by Tom Lyons, which I narrated for Audible. You can also get one of them for free by going to audibletrial.com slash blurry. A 30-day trial membership you can cancel any time, but you get a free audiobook out of the deal. I also have a link to the trial on blurryphotos.org. Ha <laughs> ha! Sneaky, cheeky little advert in there for you. On to the terror! Sit back Sip your cocoa or tea or whatever else you've boiled up over the crackling fire. And don't mind that sound of shuffling leaves and snapping twigs. It's probably just a squirrel. Probably. Dark Shadow When I was 12 years old, my parents divorced and I went to live with my mother. We moved into an old Victorian house which my mother rented temporarily until we found something better. For the first couple of days after we moved in, nothing seemed out of the ordinary, but at night I had trouble sleeping. When I did manage to fall asleep, I would have terrifying and disturbing nightmares. I would always wake up in a cold sweat, but I could never remember what the dreams were about. I started feeling a little paranoid. Sometimes I would catch glimpses of dark shadows moving out of the corner of my eye. I just shrugged it off as being due to my overactive imagination. One day, when my mother and I were cleaning out the attic, I came across something very strange. Tucked away in a corner, I discovered a Ouija board, and then some candles and a small black book with weird gothic lettering inside. When I showed them to my mom, her face went pale. She immediately gathered them all up, took them outside, and threw them in the trash. I tried to ask her what they were, but she refused to speak about it. The next day, she went shopping, and when she came back, she had a present for me. It was a necklace with a pendant in the shape of a gold cross. She had also bought a matching necklace for herself. At the time, I wasn't very religious, but I wore it just to please her. I had a friend named Maddie, and we decided to have a sleepover at my house. My mother was going to visit relatives, so we would be on our own for the night. I wasn't worried because Maddie was rarely afraid of anything, so she always made me feel safe. We watched some movies, and shortly before midnight, we decided to go to bed. The two of us lay in bed chatting for a while, and eventually we fell asleep. In the middle of the night, I was awoken by a strange sound. It was a low, growling noise. I woke up Maddie and she said she could hear it too. Gradually, it grew louder until it sounded like an intense humming of evil. Wondering what it was, we slid out of bed, opened the bedroom door, and peered out. We saw a dark shadow slowly moving up the stairs. Everything about it was just pure black. It almost blended in with the other shadows, but it was much darker. 
My first instinct was to run, but I couldn't move. Fear had me rooted to the spot. When it reached the top of the stairs, the dark mass just stood there, with its head bowed and shoulders slumped. Its whole silhouette seemed fuzzy and indistinct around the edges. It had no face to look at, just a heavy black outline of something that looked vaguely human. Slowly, it turned to face us, and all I saw were deep red eyes staring at me. It was as if it was looking straight through us. It had something that looked like a mouth and seemed to smile at us with a malicious grin. I looked at Maddie and she looked at me. I will never forget the look of terror on her face. I felt my body tighten up in fear, but I I couldn't remove my hand from the doorknob. The dark shadow just kept leering at us as it slowly approached. I saw it reach out with one of its hands and I screamed, but I couldn't really move. As it came closer, I I felt like I was being choked, and then I remember my eyes closing like I was fainting. I reached up and pulled my collar aside, exposing the gold cross around my neck. The shadow seemed to stop at its tracks. Maddie suddenly grabbed me and pulled me back as she slammed the door. We piled up furniture against the door and waited. All we could hear was an eerie silence. I was shaking so hard that Maddie actually had to hold me to get me to calm down. We were so freaked out that we just sat there behind the pile of furniture and held on to my gold cross for dear life. We stayed awake all night, too terrified to close our eyes. As the morning light began shining through the window, my nerves were so shot and I was so exhausted that... I eventually passed out. I awoke a few hours later when my mother came home. We opened the door and looked out into the hallway. There was nothing there, but we could see what seemed like vague, dusty footprints where the dark mass had been. I told my mother all about what happened. The next day, we moved out and stayed in a motel until we could find another house. I'm 18 now, and I still think about this incident all the time. I know that was a demon we saw that night. It was too dark and felt too evil to be anything else. The Boy Who Lost His Face There's a summer camp on Satellite Island called Camp Orkila. Every summer, groups of children go out to the island for overnight trips. The campers stay there for a few nights and go hiking and explore the island. There are a lot of tall cliffs, and the trails run along the edge of the cliffs. One summer, many years ago, a group of campers went out on a trip to Satellite Island. One of the campers was a seven-year-old boy named Johnny. He was a bit of a loner and didn't mix well with the other kids. He liked to wander off on his own and the counselors constantly had to keep an eye on him. On the first day after they built the camp, the counselors took the kids for a long hike on the trails around the perimeter of the island. 
Halfway through the hike, Johnny wandered off from the group and nobody could find him. They doubled back and searched the trail, but there was no sign of him. The sun was setting and counselors had to take the kids back to camp before it got dark. Later that night, the counselors were about to go to bed when they saw Johnny come walking down from the trails. They were relieved that they weren't going to have to report a missing child, but they were also angry that he had ignored their warnings and wandered off from the group. The next day, as punishment, Johnny wasn't allowed to leave the campsite. He had to stay behind while the others went to explore the island. On the third day, Johnny begged to be allowed to go hiking again and explore the rest of the island with them. The counselors reluctantly decided to let him go with them again on the hike, but they warned him not to wander off on his own. However, while the kids were exploring the inner part of the island, Johnny disappeared again. The counselors searched for him, but the island is quite large and they weren't able to find him. Eventually, the sun began to set and they were worried that if they stayed out after dark, they might run the risk of getting lost themselves. So, the counselors had to take the other kids and make their way back to the main campsite, leaving Johnny alone in the woods again. They all assumed Johnny would come back on his own. But that night, as they were going to bed, there was still no sign of Johnny. When they woke up in the morning, the wayward boy was still missing, so the counselors organized a search party. They searched the woods and the trails, but they couldn't find him anywhere. They combed every inch of the island, shaking trees, looking at caves, and peering into crevices, but they still couldn't find any trace of him. One of the counselors was walking along the trail that led along the cliffs when he happened to peer over the edge. All of a sudden, he spotted something in the water that sent a chill down his spine. It looked like a bundle of clothes being pushed by the tide up and down along the rocks at the base of the cliffs. The other counselors piled into a small boat and rowed out to the location. As they got closer, they could see that it was the body of a young boy floating face down in the water. They recognized his clothes. It was Johnny. One counselor reached out and grabbed the boy by the scruff of the neck As he tried to pull the boy into the boat, the small corpse flipped over and the counselor let out a horrified scream. Everybody on the boat saw Johnny's face, or what was left of it. The grisly sight made them vomit over the side. Johnny's face was gone, scraped off by the jagged rocks at the base of the cliff. There was nothing left but torn up flesh and a pair of eyes. Cold, dead eyes, wide open and staring at them. They had to call the Coast Guard to come and take the body. Johnny's parents were overcome with grief. Ever since then, they say the ghost of Johnny haunts Satellite Island. They call him Johnny No-Face. If you're on the island at night, it's said that you can see his eyes. Just a pair of cold, dead eyes staring at you from the trees, silently watching you. And they say that if you wander off into the woods alone, you may come across a young boy with brown hair standing with his back to you. 
If you see him, whatever you do, don't speak to him. If you talk to him, they say, he will turn around and rip off your face. Nation, what difficulties did you have with learning a new language in school or whenever you did it? Did you do it through textbooks or did you try to use some weird online thing? I know I took two years in high school and two years in college and I knew nothing. And that's because I wasn't using something like what we have been blessed to have as a longtime sponsor and we use it. Rosetta Stone, they're the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or as an app. And the reason why I enjoy doing it, it immerses you in the language you want to learn instead of just being silly drills and a class you can sleep through. <laughs> I definitely use it. I, I think it's really cool how they have the speech recognition program on there. It gives you the feedback on the pronunciation. Are you making fun stuff? of me because I can never do that? That's what you're getting at right now. That's <laughs> what it, It's like, what are you trying to do? Do it right. <laughs> Uh, but it is really cool. They've got all kinds of lessons. You can do it uh, offline. You don't even have to be online for it. That is great because it's right there in your pocket or at your home and you can do it. You got 15 minutes. Let's go to town. Let's do it. You know, and mm-hmm. it's amazing value. Lifetime membership has all 25 languages available for any trips. You need language in life. You need to brush up on stuff. Maybe you just met a girl or a guy or a non-binary and they're from uh, somewhere else. Somewhere, you know, who knows? Well, if they're in the one of the 25, Rosetta's going to work for you. <laughs> you get lifetime access to all of that. And there is a 50% offer, so it is a steal. So don't put off learning language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Hysteria 51 listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for that 50% off that I just told you about. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, a today. The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. Part 1 Without, the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlor of Laburnum Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess. The former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical chances, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. Hark at the wind, said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. I'm listening, said the latter, grimly surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. Check. I should hardly think that he's come tonight said his father with his hand poised over the board. Mate, replied the son. That's the worst of living so far out, bawled Mr. White with sudden and unlooked-for violence. 
of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. Paths a bog, roads a torrent. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses in the road are lit, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. There he is, said Herbert White as the gate banged too loudly and heavy footsteps came toward the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself, so that Mrs. White said, Tut, tut, and coughed gently as her husband entered the room, followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing him. The Sergeant Major took hands and, taking the proffered seat by the fire, watched contentedly as his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter and he began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest his visitor from distant parts. As he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of wild scenes and doughty deeds, of wars and plagues and strange peoples. Twenty-one years of it, said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him. He don't look to have taken much harm, said Mrs. White politely. I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man, just to look around a bit, you know. Better where you are, said the sergeant major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. I should like to see those old temples and fakirs and jugglers, said the old man. What was it that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something or other, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw? said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absent-mindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him. To look at, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket. It's just an ordinary little ball, dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. And what is there special about it? inquired Mr. White as he took it from his son and, having examined it, placed it upon the table. It had a spell put on it by an old fakir, said the sergeant major. A very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives, and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. They put a spell on it, so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. 
His manners were so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter had jarred somewhat. "'Well, why don't you have three, sir?' said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him in the way that middle ages want to regard presumptuous youth. "'I have,' he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. "'And did you really have the three wishes granted?' asked Mrs. White. "'I did,' said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. "'And has anybody else wished?' persisted the old lady. "'The first man had his three wishes, yes,' was the reply. "'I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. "'That's how I got the paw.' His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. "'If you've had your three wishes, then it's no good to you now, then, Morris,' said the old man at last. "'What do you keep it for?' The soldier shook his head. "'Fancy, I suppose. I did have some idea of selling it, but I don't think I will. It has caused me enough mischief already. Besides, people won't buy.' They think it's a fairy tale, some of them, and those who do think anything of it want to try it first and pay me afterward. If you could have another three wishes, said the old man, eyeing him keenly, would you have them? I don't know, said the other. I don't know. He took the paw, and dangling it between his forefinger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. "'Better let it burn,' said the soldier solemnly. "'If you don't want it, Morris,' said the other, "'give it to me!' "'I won't,' said his friend doggedly. "'I threw it on the fire. "'If you keep it, don't blame me.' For what happens. Pitch it on the fire like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his possession closely. How do you do it? He inquired. Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major. But I warn you of the consequences. "'Sounds like the Arabian Nights,' said Mrs. White as she rose and began to set the supper. "'Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me?' Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket, and all three burst into laughter as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. "'If you must wish,' he said gruffly, "'wish for something sensible.' Mr. White dropped it back in his pocket, and placing chairs, motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper, the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterward the three sat listening in an enthralled fashion to a second installment of the soldier's adventures in India. "'If the tale about the monkey's paws not more truthful than those he's been telling us,' said Herbert as the door closed behind their guest, just in time to catch the last train." We shan't make much out of it. Did you give anything for it, father? Inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. 
<laughs> a trifle, said he, coloring slightly. He didn't want it, but I made him take it, and he pressed me again to throw it away. Likely, said Herbert with pretended horror. Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with. Then you can't be henpecked. He darted around the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, armed with an antimacassar. Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I don't know what to wish for, that's a fact, he said slowly. Seems to me, I've got all I want. If only you cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you? Said Herbert with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for two hundred pounds then. That'll just do it. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman as his son, with a solemn face, somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred pounds, said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted his words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. It it moved, he cried with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished... It twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son as he picked it up and placed it on the table. And I bet I never shall. It, it must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind, though. There's no harm done. But it did give me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again while the two men finished their pipes. Outside, the wind was higher than ever, and the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence unusual and depressing settled on all three, which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the rest of the night. I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert as he bade them good night. And something horrible squatting on top of your wardrobe, watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver, he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. Part 2 In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, he laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room, which it had lacked on the previous night and the dirty, shriveled little Paul was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. "'I suppose all old soldiers are the same,' said Mrs. White. "'The idea of our listening to such nonsense! How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, 
How could 200 pounds hurt you, father? Might drop on his head from the sky, said the frivolous Herbert. Morris said that things happened so naturally, said his father, that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence. Well, don't break into the money before I come back, said Herbert as he rose from the table. I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you. His mother laughed, and following him to the door, watched him down the road. In returning to the breakfast table, was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity, all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired sergeant majors of bibulous habits when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. (sighs) Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home, she said as they sat at dinner. I dare say, said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer. But for all that, the thing moved in my hand. That I'll swear to. You thought it did said the old lady soothingly. I say it did, replied the other. There was no thought about it. I had just... What's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside, who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with the two hundred pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times he paused at the gate, and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hand upon it, and then, with sudden resolution, flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White at the same moment placed her hands behind her, and hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease into the room. He gazed at her furtively and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to broach his business, but he was at first strangely silent. Uh, I was asked to call he said at last, and stooped and picked up a piece of cotton from his trousers. I I come from Maud Meggins. The old lady started. Is anything the matter? She asked breathlessly. Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it? Her husband interposed. There, there, mother, he said hastily. Sit down and don't jump to conclusions. You've not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir and eyed the other wistfully. "'I'm sorry,' began the visitor. "'Is he hurt?' demanded the mother wildly. The visitor bowed in assent. "'Badly hurt,' he said quietly. "'But he is not in any pain.' "'Oh, thank God!' said the old woman, clasping her hands. "'Thank God for that! Thank God for... She broke off as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned on her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. She caught her breath, and turning to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling hand on his. 
there was a long silence. He was caught in the machinery, said the visitor at length in a low voice. Caught in the machinery, repeated Mr. White in a dazed fashion. Yes. He sat staring out the window and taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it as he had been wont to do in their old courting days nearly forty years before. He was the only one left to us, he said, turning gently to the visitor. It is hard. The other coughed and, rising, walked slowly to the window. The firm wishes me to convey their sincere sympathy with you and your great boss, he said without looking round. I beg that you will understand I'm only their servant and merely obeying their orders. There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring, and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look such as his friend the sergeant might have carried into his first action. I was to say that Maul and Megan's disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit no liability at all, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand and, rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds, was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. Part 3 In a huge new cemetery, some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead and came back to the house steeped in shadows and silence. It was all over so quickly that at first they could hardly realize it and remained in a state of expectation as though of something else to happen. Something else which was to lighten this load, too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed and expectations gave way to resignation, the hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that, the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. Come back, he said tenderly. You'll be cold. It is colder for my son, said the old woman, and wept afresh. The sounds of her sobs died away on his ears. The bed was warm, and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully, and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. The paw! She cried wildly. The monkey's paw! He started up in alarm. Where? Where is it? What's the matter? 
She came stumbling across the room toward him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it. It's in the parlor on the bracket, he replied, marveling. Why? She cried and laughed together, and bending over, kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what? He questioned. The other two wishes, she replied rapidly. We've only had one. Was not that enough? He demanded fiercely. No, she cried triumphantly. We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly and wish our boy alive again. The man sat in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. Good God, you are mad, he cried aghast. Get it, she panted. Get it quickly and wish... Oh, my boy, my boy, my boy. Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you are saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman feverishly. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go get it and wish, cried his wife, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. He's been dead ten days. Besides, he... (laughs) I would not tell you else, but I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back, cried the old woman, dragged him towards the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down into the darkness and felt his way to the parlor and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place in a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him ere he could escape from the room seized upon him, and he caught his breath as he found that he had lost the direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat, he felt his way round the table and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish! she cried in a strong voice. It is foolish and wicked, he faltered. Wish! repeated his wife. He raised his hand. I wish my son alive again. The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank trembling into a chair as the old woman, with burning eyes, walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle end, which had burned below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls until, with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, 
crept back to bed. In a minute afterward, the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but sat silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time screwing up his courage, he took the box of matches, and striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs the match went out, and he paused to strike another. And at the same moment, a knock came so quiet and stealthy as to be scarcely audible, sounding on the front door. The matches fell from his hand and spilled in the passage. He stood motionless, his breath suspended, until the knock was repeated. Then he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. What's that? cried the old woman, starting up. A rat, said the old man in shaking tones. A rat, it passed me on the stairs. His wife sat up in bed, listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. It's Herbert! She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the arm, held her tightly. What are you going to do? He whispered hoarsely. It's my boy! It's Herbert! She cried, struggling mechanically. I forgot it was two miles away! What are you holding me for? Let go! I must open the door! For God's sake, don't let it in! cried the old man, trembling. You're afraid of your own son! She cried, struggling. Let me go! I'm coming, Herbert, I'm coming! There was another knock, and another. The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing, and called after her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice, strained and panting. The bolt! She cried loudly. Come down! I can't reach it! But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If only he could find it before the thing outside got in. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back, and the door opened. A cold wind rushed up the staircase, and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him the courage to run down to her side, and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet, and deserted road.
Irish rose. About an Irish girl, there is a song. This tragic tale won't take too long. Not only did she do her family wrong, she did every one of them in. They called her the wild Irish rose. She lived down where the valley lows, where food is scarce and a cold wind blows, and the grass on the ground is thin. One morning, in a fit of pique, she drowned her father in the creek. The water tasted bad for a week, and there was nothing to drink but gin. Her mother she could never stand, and so a poisoned soup she planned. The mother died with spoon in hand, and on her face a hideous grin. She set her sister's hair on fire, and as the smoke and flame rose higher, she danced around the funeral pyre, playing her violin. She weighed her brother down with stones, and drowned him there despite his moans. All they ever found were bones, and occasional pieces of skin. One day, when she had nothing to do, she cut her baby brother in two, then served him up as an Irish stew, and invited the neighbors in. And when at last the police came by, the murders she could not deny. To do so would have been a lie, and lying, she knew, was a sin. That's it for this year's Campfire Ghost Stories. But don't worry, I see the very last finger on that monkey's paw of yours just curled, which means you have to deal with the consequences of puns. There's an old story out of America's Wild West of a gunslinger who owned a primate family. A run-in with a bandit resulted in the father of the primate family being killed, and the gunslinger sought revenge, banging on people's doors, asking, Did you shoot my monkey's paw? Of course, I could have chosen a story instead of a poem about a young lass from Ireland committing terrible atrocities, But there's something nice about a poem instead of a wild Irish prose. Them's puns. Hey, thanks to everyone who has donated and backed the Shadows in the Desert documentary. Uh, I'm actually about to head back out there for some more filming, and then we might be about halfway done. (laughs) There's a lot to do, you guys. Rewards for backers will be going out closer to when the film is ready, so... That's going to be a bit longer, probably several months uh, in all actuality. But we are assembling the stuff, including the amazing poster we just had finished up. And if you haven't seen it yet, check out my or Derek's Facebook page for our shows, because we posted it there recently. I'm very happy with it. We're both real excited for it. We, We love the look of it. So thanks to everyone for your support and patience, and thanks for listening to Blurry Photos. Follow me on the social stuff, watch me on Twitch, keep an eye out for more fun stuff. And for this episode of Blurry Photos, I have been the boy who lost his marbles, David Flora. Don't stop blurrieving. Blurry Photos